Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. This is Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome to episode four of our reunification series. This is the final installment of the saga, so thanks for sticking with us this far. We've traveled a long way from the economic stagnation of the 1980s in the DDR to the rapid collapse and annexation of the East into the West. And shortly thereafter, the dismantling of the East German economy managed by the Treuhand. Last week, Victor Grossmann gave us some really great insights into what life was actually like in the DDR and during reunification. So if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. Definitely. And yeah, so through all of this, you know, we, we talked about divisions between East and West and how those were handled both economically and politically. Of course, all of us favored the West in about every regard you could imagine. But the idea was to sort of merge the East into the West in a way that would become broadly indistinguishable, at least was the goal and the stated goal. Of course, this didn't really happen economically with the lingering GDP and wage disparities, where the East is still at about only 70% of the West. Didn't happen politically either. Um, You know, even though the East joined the West, there wasn't some kind of reconciliation between the two. It was it was all in the, the terms of the West. And as Michelle said, we talked about this on the previous episode. So definitely go back and listen to those if you haven't already, because we're going to pick up and talk about the, the lingering disparities today and and what reunification means in memory. Because culturally, too, the divisions are massive. You'll often hear this kind of rote phrase about the walls that still remain, or 30-some years after the wall fell, divisions between East and West linger. Those are basically truisms at this point. And the phrase in German, Mauer im Kopf, you know, the wall in your head, is is often uttered. It's sort of to say, like, it seems a bit gaslighting almost to be like, oh, no, the divisions are in your mind. Like, there's nothing really there, even though everything we talked about, it's quite real. And, you know, you'll see... Um, see today that there's kind of an emphasis on on making those more real in a cultural sense. And that's why we want to look at these lingering cultural divides and what they really mean beyond these just like tired headlines that you see every October and November on the anniversaries of reunification and the walls collapse, respectively. And we also want to address this bigger point about the politics of memory surrounding German reunification. The fact that the ideological war between East and West that characterized the Cold War, it never really ended. And it keeps going today, despite the clear triumph of the West in about every regard. They're just like, they're basically spiking the football of the ideological battle. And like I said, you know, despite the, the total political and economic triumph of the BRD, there's still this concerted and extremely well-funded effort to paint the former East as this absolute hellhole dictatorship with no redeeming qualities or lessons for what a modern Germany could look like. 
And as we heard on the previous episode from Victor, you know, there, there were some problems, there were some shortages, there were some some freedoms you didn't have in the East that, that might have been desirable. But it's not like everyone was spending every minute in absolute just destitution and depression and misery. And there's this extremely coordinated effort to make it look like it was because that suits the ideological goals of a lot of the people in power in Germany today. Exactly. I think the general memory of the DDR kind of gets lumped in with Nazi Germany. And the way that this happens is with a hyper focus on the Stasi. Something I've often heard is that the Stasi had far more informants than the Gestapo, which, you know, seems designed to draw a sort of moral equivalence between the two. Overall, the DDR also gets characterized constantly in history books and in reporting as a Gewaltsherrschaft, a tyranny, or Unrechtsstaat, an unjust state. Yeah, and this is all the politics of memory in action. And the effort to win the battle over the memory really started immediately after reunification. So directly after the fall of the DDR, the the West conducted these very high profile trials of some East German border guards for shooting deaths um, at the border between East and West Germany, both at the the Berlin Wall and the the actual border between the the main parts of the two countries. And, you know, of course, like I would never say that that's not a tragedy. I'm not a not a person in favor of militarized borders at all. But this is far from the only border where there are deaths, you know, and it it's funny how we talk about the former intra-German border as this like unnatural thing, whereas the borders between Western countries and the outside are kind of sacrosanct. And of course, we have to defend them. And you see this in terms of the language of how the German border is described. The German border, the intra-German border, I should say, is always described as having killed people. There's, a, there's several articles. I tweeted one from the Spassbrems account about this. So the, the German, the intra-German border kills people, but people just die when they're crossing the, say, the EU or the UK or the US border today. So the fault is blamed on the intra-German border for doing the killing, and yet it's people's own fault if they want to get to the US. And it's weird, like, why does the intra-German border have agency, but other borders are just passive obstacles that you die trying to cross, you know? To take it even a step further, why are there no trials for Frontex agents or ICE agents or people in the UK border force who are all more than happy to let migrants die trying to reach their countries? But it was this criminal proceeding when it was between East and West Germany. Of course, the most famous trial right after unification was of former DDR leader Eric Honecker who was tried in 1992 for, I believe it was like 60 counts of manslaughter based on his order to fire along the so-called death strip of the Berlin Wall. This is all a bit ironic because the wall was, of course, mainly a product of Cold War tensions and lots of Western leaders were actually elated when it went up. It gave them both a propaganda win and it reduced tensions between East and West. You know, this went up directly following like a, a very severe border crisis in it within Berlin itself. And it was a way to reduce that. So this this wasn't really like a totally imposed by the East with the West totally, um, totally protesting, despite the oversighted Reagan speech. The West was actually quite happy about the wall. 
Ultimately, the trial was suspended because he was dying of cancer, but it was still widely seen as a very politicized way to try to put communism as a whole on trial. And uh, James McAdams has a book on this, Judging the Past in Unified Germany, where he argues that trials and other forms of accountability were, quote, part and parcel of their nation's continuing historical responsibility to act upon the legacy of German authoritarianism. Drawing directly, um, you know, on comparison and using terms like totalitarian are very useful for these ideological purposes because it draws this false equivalence between the socialist regime in the East and the Nazi regime earlier. And this has, to me, a very, like a, a dual function. One, it helps to bash communism, the benefits of which are totally self-explanatory. And two, it relativizes and in a way distracts from Nazi crimes. It's as if to say, sure, yeah, once we were the bad guys, but then we were also the victims later of communism. Yeah, I mean, those are some of the ways that the state has tried to shape memory. But I also want to talk about how this remembering operates for everyday people. I'm going to make an assumption here, assuming listeners will have heard of nostalgie. That's nostalgia for the East, described as this kind of phenomenon. Um, I was just in Leipzig the other day and saw a few DDR-läden, like these shops with knickknacks and kitsch from East Germany. And I just find it so funny that the acceptable way to reminisce about the DDR is to consume these iconic products like the classic Eierbecher shaped like a hen or Spreegurken or a certain type of mustard that they only made in East Germany, which is still produced because people miss it. It makes me think of those souvenir tables in the tourist areas of Berlin near Checkpoint Charlie that sell gas masks and military hats with like Soviet symbols. Because whenever I see this stuff, I think, oh, okay, this is what remains of life in East Germany, like a pile of kitsch, a pile of... Like the, the trabi, the car, too. It's, it all ties into that. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, gotta fit it into the logic of the market. That seal with the wreath of wheat and the hammer and sickle, it looks so sick and it'll definitely sell a bunch of t-shirts. I don't know. I've always thought of this commodification as like stripping DDR symbols of any meaning. But when I was doing research for this episode, I stumbled across this page on the website of the Bundesstiftung Aufarbeitung der SED-Diktaturs about Ostalgie. And the way that they cover this is to claim that it trivializes tyranny and that those people buying up the hen-shaped egg cups are actually just romanticizing communist East Germany and not just plain nostalgia. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't I've make sense. I've got bad news for the Germans about Volkswagen then. That's uh, right. <laughs> Yeah. I don't don't think they want to take that logic uh, too much farther than that. Yeah, and so all of this is about, you know, erasing symbols and ideology of the East. You know, obviously not all symbols, but as Michelle said, you know, you can keep your you can keep your kitsch, but any symbol of what the regime actually meant or the goals it aspired to, even if, you know, in some ways maybe it didn't didn't live up to them. People can have their objections and debates over political systems, but 
it's not like everyone in the East was constantly miserable. And it's like we can't be reminded of that or can't be allowed to think that. For example, in academia, you have Marxist thought effectively being excised from universities. You know, Victor also talked about this, did a great job on our last episode. And like, regardless of what you think about Marxism or Marx's ideas, he's like easily in the top three most influential social scientists of all time. Probably number one, but, you know, I'm sure some some Smith or Weber hands would, would get mad at me. But anyway, like not engaging with his ideas as an institutional doctrine of a university is just pure malpractice. And you see this broader trend most visibly with the Palace de Republique being turned into the Humboldt Forum. Also that we talked about, and, you know, this is happening despite cries of architects from all over the world to preserve the old East German Palace de Republique. Uh, it was just a very significant architectural building and a lot of non-socialist architects were like, no, you should keep this. And so now instead we have this pseudo-Prussian palace that's filled with colonial plunder where the DDR used to be based. Again, yeah, Victor, Victor got really into this. So definitely go listen to that previous episode if you haven't already. Definitely. And like speaking of symbols and erasing symbols of the East, I mean, I do want to mention art created in the DDR and how it is treated and viewed by the art world. This form of art socialist realism really not being taken seriously. I can link to this article in the show notes. It's called A Second Life for Socialist Realism by Magdalena Moskalevitz. And she sums up the general consensus of the art world quite nicely. Quote, in the former East, socialist realism is associated with state propaganda, with the instrumentalization of art for a political agenda. Many would say it has no moral ground. It is an accomplice in totalitarianism. Socialist realism is further dismissed for aesthetic reasons as an assembly line art of copies and cliches. And, you know, my knee-jerk reaction to dismissing this style as cliché is to point to the giant mosaic wrapped around the Haus des Lehrers at Alexanderplatz. It's this, I think, fantastic mural by East German artist Walter Womacker. It's beautiful in its own right, I think. And I get that people have different tastes, but it doesn't make sense to just black out 40 years of production of art and, and really exclude art created in the DDR from permanent museum collections. One of the first big exhibitions of DDR art took place at the Neue Nationalgalerie in 2003. Coincidentally, the same year Goodbye Lenin came out, so really riding this wave of, of uh, nostalgia, right? <laughs> Anyways, this exhibition was very popular, and it kind of seems to me like hanging more DDR art in museums could actually encourage a more nuanced conversation about East German life and culture, and that not doing so actually perpetuates this homogenized view of the DDR. That's funny. Yeah, one of the first times I was in Berlin, I think it was probably like six or so years ago, at this new museum in Potsdam, they had like a also a DDR art museum, uh, or sorry, exhibition. And it was like, of course, kind of cordoned off as if, to, as if to say, this is not normal art. It's like its own sort of bastardized thing that we couldn't mix into the main exhibition. But anyway, I was I was amazed. I was like, wait, this isn't like your stereotypical like socialist art all the time. It was like very cool, like 
modern paintings that like to me could stand alone on their own right as a work of art but instead they had to be sort of like specifically contextualized and it's like well why why can't this just be considered art rather than like a kind of bastardization or an outlier right exactly speaking of popular depictions of the ddr we of course have to mention the beloved political thriller Das Leben der Anderen, released in 2006. And with the lives of others for you non-German speakers. Right. And with that, I'd like to transition a bit to talking more about the Stasi. People, as many of you might know, can request to look at the Stasi files. There's a huge archive. And that happened because the... East Germans, like in this transition period, like we talked about in a previous episode, did occupy the Stasi headquarters and demand that the files be opened to the public. And the German government funds this extremely well. (laughs) And they're in the process of digitizing the entire archives. Somehow the only thing that Germany can manage to digitize exactly. is, of course, the Stasi archives. Um, and yeah, speaking of the movie, Das Leben der Anderen, movie episode on that coming up in the next few weeks. So be excited for that. Very, very distilled ideology in that one. will be fun to talk about. The pop culture depictions are everywhere, um, but so are the official state institutions that last to this day. It wasn't just a few show trials in the 90s. For example, there's an agency specifically in charge of the records for the Stasi. My German pronunciation is not as good as Michelle's, but I'm going to give this a shot. It's called Der Bundesbeauftragte für die Unterlagen des Staatssicherheitsdienstes der ehemaligen Deutschen Demokratischen Republik. That is... Nailed it. Thanks. And this is also part of the platform of European Memory and Conscience, an organization founded in October 11 uh, that's active in like 20 countries. And it focuses on the history of, quote, totalitarian regimes in 20th century Europe. Again, combining fascism and communism into one concept serves this very particular ideological function as like a bit of a footnote. Anytime you see the word totalitarian, I would get a bit skeptical because like that word exists to conflate communism with fascism. Like that's the that's the ideological purpose of that word. And when you hear it used as a blanket term, it's often used to say that something like socialism is equally as bad as Nazism or at least to imply it. Also, in the 90s, there was this parliamentary commission on the horrors of the East This is actually encouraged by some former dissidents in the East who were surprised that as economic conditions in the East declined after reunification, some Easterners kept voting for the PDS, the successor to the SED. And they were surprised by that. They were like, well, clearly they don't understand how bad their lives were during the East. And, you know, this turned out to be very unbalanced. Again, quoting this McAdams book. Quote, if East Germans had moderately intelligible or even partly understandable reasons for going along with the governing regime's policies, this would not be apparent to anyone reading the final report. And some former Easterners who were in the PDS actually wrote replies to this, condemning the conclusions that life in the DDR was pure misery. 
And yeah, it would definitely be weird to have a government commission conclude that decades of your life were basically like a prison sentence, even if you didn't feel that way. And, you know, some, some people rightly rejected that. There is also the Bundesstiftung zur Aufarbeitung der SED-Diktatur, which is the federal foundation for the reappraisal of the SED dictatorship, SED being the Socialist Unity Party, the ruling party in the East. And so even saying SED-Diktatur, like, you know, you can argue what type of regime it was, but like, that's definitely some ideology even in the title. But this is a government-funded foundation to study the crimes of the East. Their logo is the East German flag with the logo cut out, which became a symbol in some of the protests, but again, a bit heavy-handed. And this drew a lot of criticism as a one DDR researcher, Iko Sasha Kovalich, sorry for the butchering of the name, but he accused the foundation of having a monopoly on DDR research and argued that its work was carried out by a small group of non-academic historian politicians and their professional party friends. Yeah, this thing about the like foundations is so interesting. I actually like wanted to get inspired for this episode and so I went spazieren down to the Stasi Museum in Lichtenberg and like right at the entrance they have a kind of pillar in the shape of what those German wall pieces that you see scattered around Berlin. And it's has this plaque hanging on it with all of the foundations that like sponsor the museum. And you have all of these like coalitions, clubs. They have they have a whole list of the like groups of survivors of communism or whatever they're called, right as you walk into the museum. Anyways, yeah, the Stasi Museum. It's actually called the Campus for Democracy. <laughs> uh, I feel insane. Something's like, I feel too caffeinated. Sorry. Okay, let me just try that sentence again. Okay. So I was at the Stasi Museum, which is actually called the Campus for Democracy. And they have this open air exhibit called Revolution, Fall of the Wall. Um, the photographs are pretty great. I would encourage people to go check it out just for that. There are kind of these giant panels covering the time from the peaceful revolution to, through to reunification with a really strong focus on the opposition groups in East Germany. And, you know, I'm following along these 136 panels waiting for the moment after the elections of March, like waiting for to see how they cover the Treuhand. And sure enough, there's kind of a measly two paragraphs. <laughs> and I'm just going to quote from that here because it's so vague. It's so vague. They say, quote, there were heated debates on settling questions of ownership in the end, for property expropriated by the communist regime since 1949, the principle of restitution rather than compensation was applied in all but a few cases. So that feels but sparse. That's one specific question about restitution that doesn't answer what to do with businesses that were created under the state. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. And then they just move on and they're like, look at the happy people crossing the border. Look at this child's drawing of like getting in his Trabant to go see West Germany for the first time, like, hooray, right? 
it really just gets at our entire point about the triumphalist narrative surrounding reunification, not only setting the absolute focal point to be the 1989 protests, but this general papering over of the economic and cultural legacy of dissolving the East German state and how that was carried out. Right. Never mind that that kid in the in the tropies, his parents lost their job like 18 months later. Right. Oof. And right. And like something that also kind of gets on my nerves is this like modern German obsession with Datenschutz or data protection is sometimes blamed or like said to relate to the Stasi. The idea being that like some people got their apartment bugged. So now an entire modern country of 80 million people needs to be run on fax machines and paper forms. It's a very dubious link, but I've, I've heard it several times. Um, and so actually future episode on that, that would be really funny. Yeah, I think we could talk for a while about the Datenschutz uh, dilemma here. <laughs> yeah, if you've lived in Germany, you know the frustration of uh, of always having to tiptoe around this in the, the weirdest circumstances. Exactly. I do want to like talk about some current politics a bit. I saw a Wahlplakat, that's a election poster for a local left party politician here in Berlin that read Gleichstellung Ost-West. So calling for equal status for East and West in 2021 still resonates with people. I think we mentioned this in previous episodes, but pollsters just hammering out those questions about what political party best represents the East? You know, the media is constantly discussing what's a cliche, what's reality in terms of the East-West divide, this like Mawa im Kopf kind of thing. Another reference to the DDR that I see all the time, I have this old neighbor of mine on Facebook who is part of the Kvyadenka movement, like really against the corona restrictions. And... I'm assuming an AFD voter, you know, he kind of comments on their posts as well. And he's kind of constantly saying like, like it's the DDR 2.0. Like, here we go again with these restrictions on freedom and the government telling us what to think. You know, it really ties into kind of these right wing ideas, I think, today. And... In terms of the AFD, like the right populists use this lack of transparency surrounding the Treuhand for their own myth-making. If you lost your job, your livelihood, and had to retrain for a different career or uproot your family, even 30 years later, like this is still on your mind and obviously informs your political beliefs. I think it helps you understand the AFD's gains in the new Bundesländer. I mean, understand in the sense of trace. Voting for the AFD is, of course, never justifiable. But it ties in well to this need for nuance in remembrance. Because if you're not shaping the discourse, you really cede ground to the right. Of course, this is not something that happened in the past. I mean, we're talking about the past, but the production of the past is an ongoing thing that continues to the present and the future. Uh, there's your philosophy for the day. <laughs> but... <laughs> So, yeah, how, like, you know, how does this actually keep going and how does this sort of ideology machine keep churning? Um, and, you know, definitely like drawing moral comparisons between things is very difficult. 
But if you listen to our episode four on the economics of reunification, you know that the Troy hand ruined a lot of people's lives. You know, it, obviously the Stasi was bad. It did a lot of bad things to, to a number of people. And there's this huge apparatus to investigate that. Okay, maybe you can justify that if there's something generally comparable with the Troy hand. But where's the justice and accountability? Well, for example, there are seven archivists currently hired to sift through roughly 45 kilometers of files compared to 1,400 archivists working on Stasi files. Just this like insane, insane difference in terms of looking at these two historical injustices and what is funded, how do we choose to produce history, how does that shape memory, and obviously the focus on producing that history is shaped by the dominant ideologies and those in power that want certain narratives. And it's a lot better for the narratives of the current Federal Republic of Germany to focus on the horrors of the Stasi than the injustices of the Troyhand. And, you know, there actually were some other well-funded memories and reflections of the Troyhand. You know, it wasn't, they're not totally, totally understaffed. However, surprisingly to some of our listeners who, who listened to this episode four on the, the Troyhand, this commission concluded that the Troyhand operated, quote, relatively smoothly in just a few years. This was produced by the most seminal collection of perspectives of this report called Treuhand Anstalt, Dare to Do the Impossible, which was sponsored by the Treuhand itself. Uh, they handpicked and funded a research group, which was largely made up of conservative Western German historians. And to no one's surprise, they thought the Treuhand did a great job. It's just a great illustration of how history and memory is always politics. When the Troyhand research is funded, it's funded by the Troyhand itself trying to make it look good. And when it's not, there's seven people there sifting through kilometers of files. There's never an equality of treatment here. So always be skeptical when you see the histories of these things about you know, what, what is and is not said. And this report that I was saying was sponsored by the Troyhand really set the tone for future analysis. You know, many other studies followed, but they reached similar conclusions despite the clear political motivations of the initial report. Another example that I always think of is when you go to the Topography of Terrorist Museum in Berlin, which has like a super detailed chronicling of Nazi crimes. Um, it's, it's very text heavy, but it's very in depth. Um, quite an intense, intense museum, but you can't enter or exit it without seeing this huge exhibit about the Berlin Wall. And I think this is, maybe I'm being conspiratorial, but I really think that this is another effort to say, hey, look, we were the victims too. We had to endure communism. It wasn't only that we were the evil Nazis. And you know, it has this important function, like you, you leave the museum kind of shaken by reading about all these awful things that the Nazis did. And then you see the wall and everyone stopped there, right at this kind of the entrance comes to this little corner. And it's like a pinch point. And you have to go by it. And then the last thing you leave with is thinking about the wall and the, you know, the so-called horrors of communism. And I, I really think that has such an important ideological function for, for visitors to Berlin. Yeah, you're either like on your way in looking at the exhibit about the wall or on your way out you know if you're like a tourist in berlin you have one day to hit everything and you do these two 
museums at once, obviously you're going to conflate kind of what you learned. It's hard to keep it ordered and separate. I think that's a great point about how they set that up. Yeah. So you either end up, yeah, you either end up conflating them or, you know, as kind of one evil or the other just totally distracts one distracts from the other. And that brings us to a short reading series that I just want to read some snippets of. Um, it's another one from Deutsche Welle, Uh-oh. Germany's <laughs> Germany's BBC. I don't want to overly pick on Deutsche Welle because there's there's plenty of of bad writing from Germany out there, but it just turns out that our first two reading series are from there. And this is from Giro Schlies of Deutsche Welle, and this is called Berlin's Forgotten Victims of Communism. Berlin was not only East Germany's capital, but also the center of the Stasi's persecution. Many victims of that period feel forgotten. A memory could help change that. A memorial. I'll just read a few bits of this. I don't want to get too into it, but I think it shows quite well this ongoing battle over memory. And this is from 2018. Mauergleiche, literally wall equal. It's a word that I, even as a German, needed to Google to decipher its meaning. Or do you know what it's about? Why am I asking? A friend has just invited me to a Mauergleiche party. Sounds sick. It's another one of Berlin's typical excuses for unrestrained alcohol consumption. What? What? Okay, I'm already I'm already, I'm already really I'm confused. Already <laughs> I don't feel informed. Help. Uh, the invitation details help me to understand what they meant with Mauergleiche. Great. Quote, the Berlin Wall stood for... 10,316 days and will have been gone for just as many days on February 6, 2018. Let's drink to that. Uh, this is the sort of famed equinox of the wall oh. that has now surpassed, where the wall has has now been, been down longer than it was up. Drinking to the Berlin Wall? The symbol of East German communist regime was infamously deadly. At least 140 people died trying to cross over from East to West Berlin, with East German border guards shooting many. The Berlin Wall is gone. Thank goodness. Let's drink to that. <laughs> I, again, not not saying like, of course, this is like a tragedy if someone dies crossing a border. But why do we treat deaths on this border so differently than every other border? Unfortunately, there's also this equation to take into account. The longer the wall has been gone, the less we remember those who faced injustices of the German Democratic Republic authoritarian regime. The victims of the Stasi the infamous East German State Security Service, are at risk of being completely forgotten by the public. Michelle, did you feel that that was a big risk when you went to the Stasi Museum? No, is, that a, is that an imminent threat in Germany <laughs> oh, today? Oh my gosh. It's, <laughs> it's everywhere. I, I really don't understand this this claim. I, I, don't, I don't see where he's going with this. You could be in Berlin for like 10 minutes and the wall is just like everywhere. Like I don't know... You would have to know nothing about the city to like to not, not know experience it was split. And not yeah. only, and they also shipped little bits of the wall like everywhere. Like you see, like one little like six foot piece of the Berlin Wall in front of like public spaces and museums all over the world. Like th- they really made an effort to like show that this is like this big symbol of evil. Anyway, continuing here. Even in Berlin, apart from a few remaining sections of the wall and smaller memorials, there is little to recall this dark chapter of history. I'm sorry, but I'm people sorry. people go. <laughs> it's, 
the wall is the most famous tourist attraction in Berlin. Like the people, I know it's the East Side Gallery and there's, you know, a lot to critique about the murals that are on there, but they do mention like the freedom from oppression. It's all about peace. And like, you'd have to really try to ignore this history, I think. Yeah, there's the East Side Gallery. There's all the bits in, in the city center. There's Checkpoint Charlie. There's the... The Gedenkstätte. Gedenkstätte, Berliner Mauer. Yeah, like, I, there's like the... There's the Mall of Berlin, which has like a quote and a piece of the wall inside a shopping mall. I mean, like, you really cannot escape the wall. And the idea that this is like this hidden thing that we're all going to forget is pretty ridiculous. Anyway. He went searching for traces on a rainy afternoon in mid-January. Hidden within a housing settlement is the Berlin Hohenschönhausen Memorial. The cold stone monstrosity was once the Stasi's main political prison. Michelle, you live roughly around there, right? Would you say that the Hohenschönhausen area is hidden? It's just a normal neighborhood. Like, it's literally just (laughs) a district in Berlin that you have to travel to get to because it's not smack in the middle of... The city. Nobody's right, hiding anything. They didn't relocate Hohenschönhausen to Mitte so you could see it, but like it's not hidden in any way. What they should have done yeah. is they should have like dug out the um, the former prison and plopped it down on the site of the Palaster Republic and called it called it a day. That's what should have happened. There we go. That solves so many problems in German politics. So he goes on to say to talk about the prison. A lot of political prisoners um, were tortured there. I mean, it, is, it was a bad place. We're not saying that, um, that it was a, a nice spot to be, just that it certainly isn't, isn't shortchanged in terms of memory culture. And so now we get to the actual political proposal part of this, um, where he says, shouldn't there be more respect and recognition for the difficult lives of those who took such a courageous stance towards their dictatorship? And so now he talks about a Victims of Communism Memorial. Again, quoting, It's hard to believe Berlin, which has been dubbed by Tagesspiegel as a world capital of remembrance, hasn't yet dedicated a memorial to the victims of communist tyranny. And apparently these victims have been waiting in vain for a positive signal from Germany's president or Angela Merkel. But this issue isn't likely to resonate with voters. And he concludes by saying, this time it could work if, and only if, the memorial for the victims of communist tyranny finds its way into the coalition agreement currently being worked out at that time uh, for the Kuroko between the CDU and the SPD. If everyone agrees, the memorial could even be inaugurated during the current legislative period. Admittedly, that doesn't leave much time. Yet 30 years after the end of communist terror, it wouldn't be a day too early. And this name, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, might be familiar to you. It's a basically just a right-wing organization. Um, for example, the CBC in Canada reported that the Victims of Communism Memorial received donations honoring fascists, Nazi collaborators, according to their website. They estimate that about 100 million people have been killed by communism. They keep this like running tally and then they've been critiqued by some historians for this who then then the foundation itself replied that quibbling about numbers is unseemly 
What matters is that many, many people were killed by communist regimes. What? They're keeping a tally, but they don't want to, like, get into detailed discussions about numbers? Is that- yeah, the tally is just five. So oh, don't, okay. Don't, don't critique Just, just another yeah, big yeah. graph where we get the general sense of... <laughs> right, and, and you might have seen this foundation in the news recently for adding all COVID-19 victims to the death toll of communism oh, right. because the virus originated in China. So this is like a totally <laughs> a non-credible big reach. institution. Like, come on, come on. Yeah. It's pretty crazy to think that we need like a, a local chapter or a local version of this in Berlin, especially from one of Germany's more prestigious news sources. But... It goes to show you that, like, they're not satisfied with having the wall everywhere, the Stasi everywhere. Like, people want more things to remember how awful communism was. And again, it's this double function of, like, communism is bad and it also relativizes and takes away attention from the memorials to the Nazi crimes. It's almost as if they won't be satisfied until everybody has the same opinion about something, which is kind of like what the Stasi were trying to keep yeah, it. The only thing worse than a sore loser is a sore winner. And all of the people, the like super conservative pro-capitalist people in the West are insanely sore winners about this. Right. So this all leads to our current moment. What suits the ideological goals of the ruling class of the former West? Because there's nothing the Vessies love more than an Aussie who adopts all the premises of the Western mindset and succeeds on its own terms, on the West's own terms. These success stories, it feels like the way the U.S. might kind of lift up and portray minority entrepreneurs to justify the current status quo of racial inequality. Like, look, these people made it. It must, it must be possible. There couldn't have been any structural barriers or anything. Exactly. And that brings us to our next episode, because who is a better example of this than the Kanzlerin herself, Angela Merkel, the, the Eastern scientist who was born under the oppression of communism, who rose to the political heights in the conservative party and really became one of the most influential conservative leaders in decades. So that should wrap it up for today. But yeah, get excited for next week. We're uh, we're looking forward to that Miracle episode. I think that will that will be It'll a be lot a of fun, fun especially <laughs> as we're a month out from the election to replace her. Exactly. All right. That's all I have. That's all I have. Thanks for joining. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Spaßbremse is hosted by Ted and Michelle and produced by Isaac Werman. Check out the show notes for things referenced in this episode. You can listen to more episodes of Spaßbremse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other podcast platforms, or wherever you are listening right now. Subscribe to be notified each week when our new episode drops. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to give us a rating, leave a review, or share with other people who you think could use a little Spaßbremse in their life. You can also find updates about Spaßbremse on Twitter at Spaßbremse, that's S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore pod. Thanks for listening.